Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. In the current political moment, there is widespread anti-Muslim rhetoric, and it would be easy to conclude that the large portion of white Americans see Islam at odds with American values. But a longer view of history reveals a long-standing appreciation for Islam and even conversion to the tradition among white Americans. Patrick Bowen uncovers this rich history in A History of Conversion to Islam in the United States, Volume 1, White American Muslims Before 1975. Bowen outlines American views of Islam in 19th century and early 20th century and demonstrates the various motivations for conversion. Early converts who turned Turk were seen as renegades by most of their peers, but the broadening of American liberal religiosity throughout the 19th century fostered further intellectual engagement with the tradition. The early 20th century saw significant changes in the social landscape that shaped conversion. It was now social relationships rather than esoteric interests that aided white Americans in their conversion. Greater contact with immigrant Muslims and greater participation in Islamic organizations, publications, and social activities further increased conversion throughout the second half of the century. The book is part one in a multi-volume project, which will also address conversion among black and Latino Americans up until the present. In our conversation, we discuss the earliest known white converts, the revival of the occult, the Theosophical Society, Alexander Russell Webb, marriage, pan-Islamic goals, the international Muslim student population, Sufi reading groups, women converts, Asian religious movements in America, U.S. Muslim institutions, and the overall goals of the multi-volume project. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Bowen. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So this is really a tremendous book. Thank you for for producing this very detailed historical analysis and, and thoughtful kind of theoretical interjections into the field of Islamic studies. Um, but before we get into the book, we always start here at New, Bus- New Books in Islamic Studies <clears throat> with a little bit about how you got interested in the study of Islam and Muslim societies. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your training, background, influences, things like that? Sure. Um, well, I initially studied religious studies at University of Colorado Boulder, and that was a very great experience. In fact, my religious studies courses were the only courses that I found interesting, and so I really appreciated all my teachers back then, the Ross Bryants, um, Bernanke, Terry Kleeman, Ira Chernis, a lot of people. And everybody, I enjoyed all my courses back then. And I never took anything about Islam, even though Frederick Danny was teaching back then. The one semester I was going to take a course, he was on sabbatical or something. So I never studied Islam back then. 
However, uh, fast forward a few years later when I decided to go to graduate school, I it was about 2005 or 2006 around then, and Islam was really in the news a lot because of September 11th and the war. So I figured if I'm going to graduate school to study religious studies, I should do something that people would want to have information about. People were curious about Islam, and I should not just study something I'm personally interested in. I should study something that other people will find of value, especially since the graduate degree is recognition from society. So this is for society. That's how I looked at it. And I went to graduate school at the University of Denver in the Religious Studies Department. And I was encouraged to really consider what I wanted to do. And I went and talked to almost every teacher I had and almost every advisor I had and asked them how I should decide what my topic should be within Islamic studies. And I had one teacher from the international school. And he was my, um, I, I, he taught international philosophy, <clears throat> international studies philosophy. And he said that you have to do something that you can imagine doing for the rest of your life. So you really have to choose carefully. And you have to do something that isn't just what society wants. It's something that's personal to you as, in some way. So one of the things I've been interested in prior to going to graduate school was the intersection between race and religion in the United States, particularly in mixed communities. And at first, what I was going to do was study interfaith dialogue in the United States, Muslim-Christian interfaith dialogue. But then I heard about Muslim converts. And then I heard that there were white converts and that there were Latino converts, and that the, because I'm sure everyone's heard of African American converts, and so that surprised me. And I found out there was very few studies, there were very few studies done on white and Latino converts. And I was most interested, prior to that, in white and Latino mixed community, religious communities in the United States. So <clears throat> I decided to do conversion to Islam and focus on white and Latino, whites and Latinos. And so I did that for my master's thesis. I studied some white and Latino and one immigrant African American at a local mosque. Then I went on to graduate school and actually studied, my dissertation was on African American converts, but I was working in the background on white and Latino converts, so I could have a better, broader understanding. And it has really been my passion, and that naturally led to this book. <clears throat> now this book, the way this project came about, and let me just say real quick, uh, let me just mention some of the professors that really helped me along the way. University of Denver, I was school of theology. First of all is Leakat Takin, who's now McMaster. He was my early advisor, and he was great. 
and gave me so much guidance. He put me on to so much information and knowledge and theory that has guided me to this day. And uh, Carl Raschke also provided a lot of theoretical background for me. Over at ILIF, Tink Tinker, who does Native American theology and critical race theory, was my advisor during my PhD, and he was absolutely wonderful and really made me question and think about a lot of the presuppositions I had and helped me help direct my thinking on race and religion in America. A ton of other people, Tony Lumcole, uh, Nader Hashmi, Andrew Santon, back over to you. <clears throat> Some of other people helped me along the way, kind of guide it and shape me. So I really appreciate all of them. Now, as far as the book, I started collecting research on white and Latino Muslims, as I said, for my master's thesis. And then I, I couldn't find anything. So I decided I would, I had read about in various books, mentions in passing of whites and Latinos in American Islamic groups. I think I read in Richard Brent Turner's Islam in the African American Experience, a mention of whites in the Ahmadiyyas, and then I had read in Michael Muhammad Knight's book about the five percenters about whites in, I guess, the five percenters and Peter Lamborn Wilson's book, Sacred Drift. I think he mentions um, whites in the War Science Temple. So I heard about these things, and my idea was maybe I will be able to find out more information about whites and Latinos if I dig deeper into African-American Islamic history and find information about groups that haven't received a lot of attention and look for every clue I could find. Maybe I'll stumble on some white and Latino converts from before 1975 in the past. <clears throat> so I, I did that. And I started finding all sorts of things about African-American converts that no one ever talked about before. And it was just tons of information. At home, I have several file cabinets full of stuff that I found on Islam in America, most of which hadn't really been discussed before. So by the time I was finishing up my dissertation, or actually even at the beginning of my dissertation, I had tons of information that it was. Ha I was having a hard time processing it all, and I felt I couldn't really communicate all this stuff in a single book. I wanted to write a comprehensive history of conversion to Islam in the United States with African Americans, whites, and Latinos. But so, I, in order to integrate everything, so I can understand all the different interconnected dynamics. However, I had so much, I felt I had enough for three volumes, and I could only explain it in three volumes. So I wanted to write a three-volume, essentially, chronology of the history of conversion to Islam in the United States. I contacted several 
publishers, <laughs> and everybody would say, well, we'd be interested in a, a book on just white Muslims in the United States and one volume. And that was all the American publishers. So I contact Brill, and I have to just praise and thank over and over again Nikki Brennan, who is my editor over at Brill in the Muslim Minority Series, who was totally on board with my vision for a three-volume book. However, we proposed the idea initially, and she encouraged me to change the topic of each volume to be in a way where we could sell each volume individually and be on a specific topic that wasn't chronological. They found that chronological multi-volume works don't sell as much. So I had to choose what specific topic I would want to do for each volume. Well, I had, I was working on my dissertation on African-American Muslims. And there is just so much to be learned about African-American Islam. And I had only come at it from an Islamic studies approach. I hadn't even done good background in African-American studies. So I felt I definitely wasn't prepared to do that, even though I had done a lot of research on African-American Islamic groups and a lot, I published several articles. I hadn't done, I wasn't as grounded as I wanted to be. And I didn't have the content for a whole book on early Latino Muslims in the United States. So I said I have enough for a single volume on early white Muslims. And so that's how I decided to work on this particular topic and why we have a book that is just on white Muslims. And, and so I want to explain that part of the reason why this is volume one instead of volume two when uh, someone might think, well, a history of conversion to Islam in the United States needs to start with African Americans. Well, I, I agree philosophically. I think that because there are millions of African American Muslims and only maybe a couple of tens of thousands of white Americans Muslims that just the priority in their early appearance and everything, just the priority puts them philosophically first. However, I want to make sure I did the volume on them well. So I needed extra time. I needed multiple years to work on that. In addition, I had found that there were numerous white converts to Islam in the 1800s. Well, we only found hints of African-American converts in the 19th century. So a three-volume book that's not necessarily chronological should still kind of have a chronological feeling, in my opinion. So since we could spend a lot of time on 19th century with the white Americans, that that would justify it coming first. Now, another reason I could justify it coming first was that the a lot of topics on African American relate to African American Islam have connections with white American Muslims. And so I felt we could get into a lot of detail about topics that might just receive a footnote in a volume on African American Muslims 
but we could do more research. I could do more research and talk at length about things that will be relevant for both. And if I had tried to just force it into the African-American Muslim volume, that I wouldn't be able to get into the detail to give a good enough background. So to make a long story short or <laughs> even longer, <laughs> that's, that's the journey from um, learning about it, getting interested in Islamic studies to creating this book. Yeah. While we're uh, on the topic, I was going to talk about this later in the conversation, but since you, you kind of outlined it here somewhat, um, could you just maybe briefly describe what the other volumes will focus on? Sure. Uh, volume two will be African-American Muslims. Up th this volume, volume one, is white American Muslims up to the year 1975, or 1974, actually. I don't really get into 1975. Volume two will be African-American Muslims primarily up until the year, the very beginning of 1975. It will also include some new information about white American Muslims and Latino Muslims. And volume three will be American Muslim converts of all ethnicities from 1975 to roughly 2005 or 2010. I'm not sure yet. So those are the three volumes. Great. Yeah. Now, after after reading this first one um, and knowing the, the great detail, you go into the, the broader historical movements that are going on and kind of fostering and enabling uh, or motivating white converts, um, it, it does uh, seem helpful that you could do that in this volume, which will then pave the way for the second volume, which, which sounds very exciting. So good luck with that, and uh, I look forward to that. You, you, you. talked a little bit about uh, these, these numerous sources you have, but at the same time, at least for the majority of the 19th century, um, these sources are scattered and scarce. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you piece together this narrative uh, from these this multitude of tiny, tiny sources? Okay. <laughs> it was a very long journey, and I was blessed to have stumbled upon and been given the opportunity to stumble upon a number of great rare sources along the way. Uh, I'd like to start off by mentioning Dustin Cron, who I met, whom I met when I was just beginning my research. He was a friend of a, a classmate of mine, and he is the one who told me about George Bethune English, and he had told me that some Muslim converts were aware of him, and I took that and started researching him. And <clears throat> then I had a, I really had to get familiar with the literature on Alexander Russell Webb, which a lot of people have done great research on, particularly Brent Singleton and Umar uh, F. Abdallah and Muhammad al-Hari, who has helped me a great deal along the way. These, so I had to get familiar with all their literature and start 
contacting them, find out how they found their sources, which weren't listed in American catalogs, or only one or two issues of old web's old newspapers were listed. So I contacted them, especially Brent and Muhammad, and I learned a lot about <clears throat> how to get these together. But then I still had the issue of how am I going to get from the early earliest converts, the renegades, to Webb in the 1890s. So the first dec- first couple decades of the 1810 uh, 1800s, we have identity of we have information about converts who were usually sailors in the Mediterranean. And then we have the 1890s, with his, which is Alexander Russell Webb. How is it going to get in between there? And I was talking to Sharif Anayil Bey, who is a Moorish American researcher, historian. And he was emphasizing to me the importance of esotericism in the history of Islam in America. And I, I really needed to look into Pascal Beverly Randolph, which was a uh, mid-century, to 1850s to 1870s spiritualist, African mixed white African-American, who whose teachings were used in esoteric group. He was really emphasizing this. Apparently, he's well-known in the conscious community. I didn't know that. I had seen his name mentioned before by Ernest Allen Jr., and uh, maybe a few other people who had written on African-American Muslims, Islam, United States. <clears throat> so I started researching him and getting back into the books. I think I'd skimmed the books about him before. And then I discovered that a group called the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor used Pascal Beverly Randolph's teachings as their own teachings and that the American president of this international occult or esoteric organization, the American president, Thomas Moore Johnson, also happened to be a member of the Theosophical Society in St. Louis in the lodge that Alexander Russell Webb happened to be in in the 1880s. And this excited me, so I, I attempted to see if there were any descendants of the Johnsons who might have saved any of his old books or records or anything like that. Well, it turns out the Johnson family has a whole library of Thomas Moore Johnson's works. He was a Platonist who collected thousands of rare books on Neoplatonism, Platonism, and Theosophy. And it's a great library. <clears throat> in Osceola, Missouri, a small town in Missouri. Well, I contacted the Johnson family with, to find out if they had any letters. Turns out they do. Now, initially they told me, well, we only have a few letters maybe talking about theosophy. And I said, that doesn't matter. I really, really want to see them. I'll come out there. And I was able to get a grant. And I went out to Springfield because the Johnson family hooked up with the Missouri State University and their special collections department in order to preserve, scan, and digitize these letters. And these letters, it was just a treasure chest, a treasure trove of information about the history of esotericism 
in America. It connected Pascal Beverly Randolph with her Meg Brotherhood, and in terms of the topics they read and why they read him, it talked about the Rosicrucians who have Islamic elements in their teachings. It talked about theosophy. It even mentioned Alexander Webb and his close friends in St. Louis. And I used that information and built on that to start really researching all sorts of different topics of the 19th century. I got into all sorts of esotericism, their spiritualism, tons of newspapers. Mark Demarest and I connected. He was interested in collecting spiritualist newspapers, and so was I. He was uh, researching this topic. K. Paul Johnson, <clears throat> who wrote a lot of books on theosophy, was also researching the Hermetic Brotherhood. Him and I connected, and we started sharing resources. And I saw this link from the early 1800s, from, actually from the late 1700s, all the way to the 1890s of esotericism and alternative views in American religiosity. And I traced down every single resource I could find going through archives, calling archives across the United States, internationally, to bring this all together. <clears throat> so that's, that's kind of how, how, how it happened. There are actually tons of sources I didn't even mention that I think are great and were very hard to find. And I hope people check out the book, you know, even on Google Books, to see the kinds of sources that we discovered while researching this topic. <clears throat> Yeah, Patrick, you really do an amazing job of covering a wide array of sources and uh, bringing these uh, narratives uh, life of their own. Um, so you talked about moving from these early white converts to this uh, important figure, Alexander Russell Webb, um, and how this kind of liberal American religiosity – fostered uh, interest in Islam. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Alexa Alexander Russell Webb, who plays this kind of key role in the history of white Muslim converts um, in the sense of how did his early life shape his conversion to Islam related to some of these uh, the Theosophical Society and other types of uh, non-traditional forms of religiosity. Um, why, why did they foster an interest in Islam? and how, how did this kind of play out in Webb's life? Webb was the son of a Jeffersonian Democrat newspaper publisher and editor. And Webb himself was kind of a sort of intellectually rebellious kind of young man. He didn't like going to church. He lived in upstate New York, which is already kind of a hotbed for liberal religious views. And he, yeah, he wasn't really religious as a young man. He was more inspired by the desire to innovate to be an entrepreneur. He went and became a jeweler when he could have just become, had just become a newspaper editor like his father. He didn't want to do what his father did, even though he was the oldest son. And he went off and tried to do his own thing, 
married a woman, went to Chicago, tried to run a jewelry business, and was always trying to do something innovative and make a name for himself. He eventually wound up in St. Louis, where he ended up getting into the newspaper business simply because his jewelry enterprises had all failed prior to that, and his marriage was first wife whose father was helping him with jewelry business that ended so he's in st louis working for various newspapers in the 1870s and he even tries to become a a dramatic producer and try to do plays and he fails at that as well so now he's in i believe his late 30s and he has failed a lot of things but he still has this entrepreneurial spirit, this innovative spirit, and this desire to go off and try new things. And so he gets into spiritualism, which is a belief that spirits can come and communicate with with living people. And it was a very showy kind of religious experience to go into. It's the seance rooms that we see in the 1930s and 1940s movies about spiritualism. And so, you know, floating instruments and all this. <clears throat> he gets into this. He believes it's an exciting, exciting thing. And it just so happens that a bunch of the newspaper reporters and editors that he's friends with out in St. Louis were interested in spiritualism. And they were also all getting interested in the Theosophical Society because I believe one of the former newspaper editors from St. Louis was Thomas Moore Johnson, the man I talked about earlier. And I believe he might have been convincing people. There were other people. Elliot Page, for instance, was an ambitious clerk in St. Louis. Anyways, Webb is interested in these alternative religious expressions as this is his new way of being innovative. And I'm Pretty sure his goal was to be the first person to start a spiritualist newspaper in St. Louis, taking his skills so he can be an entrepreneur. However, all the spirit, all these newspaper men who were spiritualists started getting into the Theosophical Society in the early 1880s. And so Webb followed with them, and it was really intellectually stimulating. Now, the Theosophical Society is the first, it's not the first, but it's the first esoteric organization to become popular in the United States, an organization, formal occult organization to become popular. And the St. Louis Lodge happens to be the first American philosophical lodge to be formed outside of the state of New York. It's one of the most important lodges in philosophical history. It's called the Pioneer Lodge, and Webb was one of its first members. Just so happens that people in, involved in this lodge but namely, Thomas Moore Johnson were also interested in Islam because of various promotions of Islam that were going through, that were being spread through philosophical literature at the time. Webb gets interested in this, and it appears that he began to think that he could be even more innovative and even more entrepreneurial if he were to follow his interest in Islam. So, uh, the founder of the Ahmadiyyas, Ulam Ahmad, has a story in the Theosophical Journal in 1886, late 1886. Webb reads it. 
as do other members of the Theosophical Society in St. Louis. But Red, Webb latches onto this, and he becomes very involved with, he starts writing letters with Ahmad, and he eventually decides to move out by the late 1887 or mid-1887, he decides to move out to the east so he can study Islam. Now, right before that happens, in March 1887, Thomas Moore Johnson, as the head of the Theosophical, of the, he's one of the leading members of Theosophy in America and the head the American president of the Hermetic Brotherhood, begins to create this is right after he hears about the Ulam Ahmad's article in the Theosophy. He creates a Sufi organization that is going to be used as a part of the Hermetic Brotherhood. The Hermetic Brotherhood, the, some of the items taken from Pascal Beverly Randolph emphasize Islam and spiritualism. And he had been reading various Sufi texts prior to that. So it's not clear exactly what motivated him, but it seems all these sources came together, and they happened in March 1887. He starts a Sufi organization, and within weeks, Webb is deciding he wants to go to the East to study Islam. We don't know for sure that Webb was a member of that Sufi, it's called the Sufic Circle. We don't know for sure that Webb was a member, but he was in touch with multiple members. We know this over the next several years. So... <clears throat> Webb goes to the East. He get, he meets different Muslims out there. He gets funding to start an Islamic movement in the United States, and he uh, takes that funding, contacts other Theosophists across the United States, and then decides to come back in 1893 with all all of his Theosophical contacts, with his background in dramatic production, his background in newspapers, and he uses this together to promote an Islamic movement. Now, this is the first official that I know about organized movement to spread Islam in the United States. And the reason he's able to do this is because of his connections with theosophists, Hermetic Brotherhood, spiritualists, all these kinds of people throughout the United States. <clears throat> now, could you tell us a little bit about once he returns in 1893 to focus on this new Islamic mission, what kind of efforts and activities uh, was Webb and his uh, network, what were they up to? Um, and since we know that this didn't last very long, um, how, how should we assess Webb's mission overall? Uh, okay. Well, they had a lot of goals. They were mainly interested in promoting a positive image of Islam in the United States. Getting people to learn about Islam, they felt, was an important step to achieving widespread peace to help people overcome their prejudice against Muslims. <clears throat> he contacted a lot of liberal people, gave speeches for writers, including Mark Twain, um, he contacted theosophists, wrote for them, and gave a lot of speeches to theosophists. Unitarians were a very popular kind of audience for him. He spoke at the Columbian Exposition at the World's Fair in 1893 to a, the Parliament of Religions, 
which was a big liberal religious get-together where they had representatives of various religions and experts on various religions talk about different religions because liberal Protestants at the time were increasingly interested in finding common ground with different religions because of a progressive attitude at the time. So Webb was thoroughly involved in all this. Webb and his network of people were thoroughly involved in all this. They produced a newspaper, actually produced several newspapers, <clears throat> and they were all relatively short-lived. Nothing lasted in really over a year. But they would run stories about Islamic events throughout the world, about bigotry being perpetrated by Christians in the United States, including against African Americans. Webb was not strongly committed to racial equality, but he did believe in it, even if he sometimes expressed some racist views. But generally, he was trying to promote better acceptance of Islam. He was focusing on this, and he's some international Muslim teachers would come out to the United States, and he would help try to get them to teach about Islam. He had a not a mosque, but a library and lecture hall in New York where he hosted people. <clears throat> and he had several speeches down in here. Now, the people that became involved in Webb's movement, interestingly, many of these people had been involved with esotericism before. They'd been spiritualists. They had been in theosophy. And they all had this very liberal perspective. They all came from different backgrounds, however. And several of them were older than Webb, much more experienced in alternative religions than Webb, and felt like maybe he wasn't doing things the proper way. There were some disagreements in the letters that we have about <clears throat> whether Webb used money from the mission to go out and buy beer and drink, and that offended some of them. Uh, whether he mismanaged funds, whether he was a liar, their web accused other people of lying and stealing who worked for him, and we don't know if that was actually the case that they did that. There seems to be a lot of inability to find common ground and work together. And I feel like this is attributable mostly to Webb's inexperience as an actual leader in an esoteric movement or a non-mainstream movement. He had been somewhat involved in Unitarianism, but he wasn't a real leader. He didn't have a leadership background. And he had failed in a lot of his previous uh, business enterprises. So this may have been a flaw. <clears throat> However, Webb also wasn't thoroughly connected to the alternative religious milieu as some of the people who were supporting him, some of people had been higher-ranking spiritualists, esotericists, and had even gone to prison. John Lamp, who was one of the biggest supporters in the convert to Islam, had gone to prison for expressing liberal views. And John Lamp happened to also be a person who printed Pascal Beverly Randolph's 
document that talked about Muslims and mysticism in the 1870s. So he'd gone to prison. He had been dedicated to liberal religious views, and he and Webb had a lot of disagreements. So within about three years, everything collapsed. And this is after people schisming John Lant started a mosque, in fact, in late 1893 that only lasted for a few months. People were multiple schisms happened. People tried to reunite. People hooked up with white Muslims in England and different international Muslim organizations across the world. But eventually, they couldn't really come to terms, and everything fell apart by early 1897. <clears throat> now, there are there's so much. You've really written two books here in this this one book. And even though we've kind of just been focusing on Webb and some of his intellectual influences, this is this is nearly half the book, and we really have only scratched the surface here. Um, I want to move on to the second part of the book, which uh, focuses from 1910 up to 1974. Um, and part of this transition uh, has to do with some significant changes that are happening in the social landscape. What what was different about the 20th century in terms of why white Americans were now converting to Islam? The main difference is that we start to see thousands, tens of thousands of Muslim immigrants in the United States. And these are for the most part Arab speakers and Arab people who are lighter skin and can often blend in with white society or their children can, and they are interacting with Americans. And this is what leads to conversions. These are no, the white Americans who are interested in alternative religions, liberal religion, esotericism become and, and then go from there to Islam, become just a minor part of the broader white American convert community because so many Muslims are coming from out of the country. And they are befriending people, becoming their co-workers, and sometimes marrying them. <clears throat> so this is the core reason. Now we can talk about some differences between the, the, the immigrants and their effects on converts over the years when immigrants first start coming in large numbers in the early 20th century. These are large, largely working class people. They married and befriended other working class people, usually people who were from a ethnic white background. So a lot of times Polish people, Jewish people, a lot of times Latinos who are mentioned in the book a little bit and were sometimes considered white depending on where they were and who the person was and they met and married these people. Later after World War II with immigration rules changing and students being allowed to come in large quantities to the United States from the Muslim majority world, we start to see a lot of educated middle class immigrants and this produces educated middle class friends and spouses of those immigrants, white friends and spouses, who 
some of whom become converts. So the fundamentally, the difference between the 19th century conversions and 20th century conversions up to 1975 is the conversions in the 19th century were primarily motivated, motivated by liberal, non-mainstream religious interests. In the 20th century, they're primarily a function of immigration. Even if the particular people who do convert, which is a relatively small number, even if these people have liberal inclinations, they generally aren't people who have a background in serious involvement with liberal movements or non-mainstream religious movements. <clears throat> so during during the 20th century, we have the, the increase of immigrants, and part of uh, your argument is that this then um, leads white converts to discussions about pan-Islamic movements through institutions and through uh, new new forms of uh, kind of national or transnational organizations um, how was the the nature of conversion also uh, transforming during this period what what did uh, white Muslim converts uh, look like what were they interested in um, in these new networks of relationships Okay, they were, as I kind of hinted at, I guess, in my previous answer, they, these were people who were less, I say in the book, religiously mature. I don't know if that's the best expression, best way to put it, but these were people who maybe had resentments towards religious backgrounds or upbringings but had not yet generally sought out conversion or joining other religious organizations that were not mainstream. A lot of times they had read a lot of literature, for instance, and the literature usually does not convert people. For the most part, people need, this is well known in studies of conversion, religious conversion, that People tend to need to be involved with the community, at least one or two other people, before they decide to convert. And so what happens is with the influx of immigrants, we have people who might have read different things. But because they're not religiously mature, and that term I use, these people are going to try to do things that are not based on experiences or intricate knowledge that they have of how religious organizations grow for non-Christian movements in the United States. So they experiment, and they do a lot of, they get a lot of things wrong, but they experiment a lot. They'll contact each other and ask to be, you know, for involvement in an Islamic organization. <clears throat> They will. They start setting up some of their own institutions. They some white converts want to lead their own institutions. They have negative experience with immigrants, who, for instance, might not think that the convert 
can never be a real, true Muslim, or the the immigrants might think, well, well, we are true Muslims, and you are just a baby in this religion. You don't really know what you're talking about. And they have negative experiences, or immigrant people might be more focused on trying to get by on a day-to-day basis to provide for them and their families. And they are not as interested in, this is especially true for pre-World War II Muslims, who were not as interested in pan-Islamic movements. They were interested in improving their lives. And while converts, especially friend converts who are not married to Muslims, they are very passionate oftentimes with spreading Islam because they see it as a cure for humanity. And so there are clashes over the level of commitment they think people, Muslims, should be putting into these pan-Islamic organizations. So a lot of white Muslims start creating organizations and connecting with the handful of immigrants who are interested in working with them to promote the spread, spreading the message of Islam to try to bring in other converts, and they work with them. The most notable in the pre-World War II period is Louis Salim Blick, the son of two Jewish immigrants. He's from Chicago. After joining the army, he goes to New York, where he meets all sorts of Islamic organizations. And he becomes frustrated in the early 1930s with their inability to proselytize as much as he would like. So he connects with an international British-led, white convert-led from England organization, Western Islamic Association. And he creates the American Islamic Association in the United States and connects with immigrants and other white converts using, surprisingly, a Sunni magazine that was being produced out in England and was the most popular Sunni magazine at the time in the United States. They, they connect with this. Other white people throughout the United States are reading this, and they start connecting with each other through this magazine. So they can form their local organizations, the national organization, and even when this, this, the formal American Islamic Association collapses in the mid-1930s, these groups, this network, is able to survive. And into the 1940s, and people start who had been affiliated with this network become inspired and help other groups. In the 1940s, we see Glick, as well as other white Americans who are connected with this, the former American Islamic Association network, as well as immigrants who had been connected with that network. They even start connecting with African-American Sunnis and Lahori and uh, Qadiani Ahmadiyas. And there is a interracial network across the United States of white Americans, African Americans, Latinos, and immigrant Muslims. And they're connected to international movements. It is almost an unknown part of history. I don't believe I've ever read about this prior to me finding these records for it. And what we ha- what we see is even after World War II, things like this continue to happen. Blick dies in 1961, but other other white converts start to rise in the Federation of Islamic Associations, in the Muslim Student Associations, 
and they are frequently interested in connecting with all ethnicities, overcoming sectarian differences in Islam. And they want to unite people. And it's because of this desire, a lot of times they'll go off and start their own organizations. One other distinguishing feature of white American Muslims before 1975, particularly after World War II, is there seems to be a desire to have Islam be what is often called a way of life and not just a philosophy, not just a community, as a practice that encompasses the way they think about themselves, the way they think about God, the way they interact with everyone, the way they dress. It becomes a discipline, an order that is used to bring peace into their lives and into the rest of the world. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Islamic mysticism played uh, an important role still during the 20th century in new formulations. Um, can you talk about uh, how particular Sufi masters or how imagined readings of uh, Islamic mysticism shaped different groups of white converts during the, the 20th century. One of the most fascinating discoveries I came upon while doing this research was that Alexander Russell Webb had been in contact with the Sufic order of 1887 and was also a the theosophist and he was also a member of the Martinist order. Now, interestingly, after Webb's movement collapsed, another member of the Martinist order came to the United States and apparently converted to Islam and con contacted Webb, contacted British white Muslims, and he helped spread this connection between Islam and Martinism in the United States. And so he believed in this mysticism. Well, it turns out that the one of the most influential Sufi teachers in the United States, Nayak Khan, who came in 1910 and found his first student, a white American woman named Rabia Martin. Rabia Martin was probably a Martinist. We have accounts that say she was. And when Nayak Khan starts his group, the first group he ever starts is in the United States, and he, call, he calls it the Sufic Order. So we don't know for sure that it was connected at all to the original Sufic Order of 1887. But some of the people who were in that, who were contact, in contact with Khan, were also original members of the Sufic Order that created a group called the Order of Sufis. Uh, C.H.A. Your regard, who wrote a book about Sufi, who wrote two books about Sufism, one with the influence of Anayat Khan, was a member of Anayat Khan's group for a brief period. Another member was S.C. Gould, or another contact person was S.C. Gould. So there's a network of people who are interested in Anayat Khan Sufism, which is, he makes non-Islamic over the course of a few years. Initially, it's supposedly non-Islamic, but it seems that he has some Islamic influences at the beginning. He makes it over the course of a few years. And this is the most popular form of Sufism in the United States in the 20th century. Non-Islamic Sufism 
as taught by Inayat Khan. And <clears throat> this form of Sufism actually breaks off into several different branches, and Robbie and Martin leads her own group, which takes on a life of its own after Inayat Khan dies. And then his son, Deliah, starts a group in the 1950s, which gains huge adherence among 1960s hippies in, into the 1970s. <clears throat> so this is the most influential. But there are other movements as well. And I was very fortunate to talk with some individuals, most notably Daniel Abdelhaymore, who were involved with one of the first Muslim Sufi communities in the United States, which was initially led by Abdul Qadir Sufi, uh, the former Ian Dallas Scotsman who converted in North Africa. And while traveling back to the United Kingdom, he ran into a, a hippie from the Bay Area in California, who was friends with other hippies who were artists, and this is the early 1970s. Dan Daniel Abdelhaymore tells him about Sufism, and they all respect him because he had been an uh, avant-garde filmmaker. So Ab Abdelhaymore, or sorry, uh, Abdelkader Sufi comes to California to work on a movie, and he connects with these Berkeley hippies and teaches them and introduces them to. Islamic Sufism, which they start establishing in California, and then they go back and forth between England and North Africa and the United States and start spreading it in the 18, early 1870s. <clears throat> this is a Habibia Sufism. There are other forms of Sufism as well, of various Islamic mysticisms. There are, there are some teachings that we know of people teaching it in the 1940s. 1950s, 1940s in New York, 1950s in Michigan. But the real blossoming of Sufism in States comes after 1974. But it's important to note that there are great varieties. There was also um, a number of white Americans who were introduced to the Moorish Science Temple, which is an African-American sectarian organization. And they start incorporating Anayat Khan's teachings and other alternative religion teachings. And they call themselves Moorish Order of Sufis and have a, a small group that is people in New York and Maryland, Pennsylvania, out to California. <clears throat> so there's a great variety, especially after World War II, of Islamic mysticism among white Americans. Well, we'll just have to wait to the... the second and third volume to hear more about that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's there's really two books in this one book that you're dealing with. There's so much information, uh, very detailed historical narratives about these different movements and individuals. Um, and again, it's, it's theoretically rich as well. And I think you provide uh, interesting models for, uh, for those of us working in Islamic studies to think about why transformations and transitions happen within particular communities. Um, since we weren't able to cover everything, um, I, I just want to give you the opportunity. Is, is there anything you, you'd want potential readers and your listeners here uh, to know as kind of a, a, a final word on 
uh, white conversion during uh, during this period? Sure. I mentioned in my introduction of the book, there is no evidence of any act of violence in the name of religion being perpetrated by a white American convert to Islam prior to 1975, which is the time period I studied. And that might surprise a lot of people. I have a chapter where I discuss what I believe might be the psychology of Islamophilia, the love of Islam. And I don't believe that this is universal or anything that it might help account for conversion somewhat. And I propose this idea that a lot of people have embraced Islam or embraced brotherhood with Muslims with the notion that the awareness that Islam has long been seen as the West, the Christian West's greatest enemy. And they have knowingly embraced that very religion as an act of tolerance. And it seems to me that for many people, many converts, many sympathizers of Islam in the pre-1975 period have had this idea that world peace is their main goal. That their main goal is to show other people that they can have love and tolerance for their potential greatest enemy. And if they do that, great things can be achieved. And this is something that I did not expect going in to find going into this research. But it seemed to me a consistent theme for white American Muslims for 1975. <clears throat> well, Patrick, congratulations on this wonderful volume. Um, before you. I let you go, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the things you're working on, you, you kind of alluded to, and, and give us a little bit of detail about the volume two and volume three. Um, do, do you know, uh, do you have expectations of when those will come out? Um, are you working on other projects as well at, at the moment? Yes, thank you. I think that volume two will hopefully come out early 2017. I'm supposed to turn the manuscript here next month in, in February. We'll see if I get that done. <laughs> but, um, and then volume three sometime after that. Uh, in addition, hopefully this February, we will be releasing the main transcriptions of the letters found at the Thomas at the Johnson Library and Museum. So dealing with Theosophy, Hermetic Brotherhood, and even Alexander Russell Webb. That will be in a book entitled Letters to the Sage, the Selected Correspondence of Thomas Moore Johnson, Volume 1, that long title. It's co-edited by K. Paul Johnson. And K. Paul Johnson and I came together, and we are currently getting some reviews right now. And hopefully the book will be out under Typhoon Press in February, or maybe March, but we're open February. So... Those are the main projects I'm working on, and I hope everyone looks looks to get those. That that volume will have inform will have the letter that announces the formation of the Sufic order in 1887. This is something that people I think will be very interested in. Well, Patrick, congratulations on all the success, and thanks for making some time to talk to me. Thank you very much, Christian.
Again, that was my conversation with Patrick Bowen about his great new book, A History of Conversion to Islam in the United States, Volume 1, White American Muslims Before 1975, published with Brill in 2015. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.